Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hey out there in archaeology podcast land, this is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. For the Rock Art Podcast, episode 97, we're going to hear from Carlos Gallinger, our uh, freelance wildlife biologist who knows uh, the habits and habitats of the bighorn sheep and will tell you some inside information about how they work, how they're hunted, and how that relates to rock art. No one's better than Carlos at this subject matter, and we're honored to have him. So, Carlos, you're here with us, aren't you? You're back again. Third I'm time's a charm. Again. Third I'm time's a charm. Again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, just going to take off and take a journey through rock art and have a good time. Fantastic. Well, Carlos Gallinger, we met a few years back, and I was uh, very impressed with you because you're a unique individual. I call you a uh, freelance wildlife biologist that studies the desert bighorn sheep, but you're you're also uh, more importantly a uh, a guide, a hunting guide, and you're a researcher as well. So let's do a snapshot of how you got involved with all of those various entanglements. Go ahead, Carlos. Well, it's been many years. I started in the Newberry Mountains in the 19, 1979 when I discovered there were bighorn sheep there and I was just amazed that they could survive. And one thing led to another. I got involved in uh, conservation, of course, being a hunting guide. I've worked with other people, other uh, scholastics, working on all sorts of different stuff, including DNA and distribution and so forth. And it's just been uh, one thing after another, but I've tried to keep a perspective on a traditional hunting gatherer point of view on both the environment and human bighorn sheep interaction. And I think that's what got me so excited about your knowledge because it was also in that same vein. So I think what you're telling me, Carlos, is you've, you've tried to look or view bighorn sheep and bighorn sheep habits and habitats through the eyes of a Native American in, in pre-contact society, living hundreds and even thousands of years ago, and how they interacted with the sheep, what they believed about the sheep, and how they hunted and procured the animals. Am I correct? Yeah, and the, and the Newberries was a good training ground because there once was a lot of sheep. And at the time I started walking, 
the newberries. There was only like 2025 and had been for a century or more. And so some of the game trails were kind of melting away, but you could still learn from them. You could find hunting camps with, with chips and matadis and blinds and petroglyphs and all this stuff that hadn't been used for a long time. But there was native hunters that used it right up into the 1920s. But then, of course, with technology and all those things that happened, that was quickly washed away. And it was a remnant. And then you started going, I started going into other mountain ranges and, and cross comparing what was there and what was not there. And it just started building a narrative of how these people interacted and lived with bighorn sheep. And it was a really fascinating and, and in-depth process. It was not something simple. They, they had a very complex, very intimate understanding of the desert bighorn sheep. So the desert bighorn sheep is an animal that's rather, to some people, unusual, rather impressive. What hooked you about bighorn sheep specifically? What is it about those animals that sort of gave you this obsession or this connection, this, this conscious focus on understanding them? What, what drove that curiosity? Well, Initially, I wanted to learn how to hunt deer, but living in Barstow, there's not much for deer hunting. And discovering the population of sheep and the newberries gave me a kind of an avenue to kind of learn. And there was really, this was, of course, pre-internet, so there was no information like we have today. And as I walked and learned and found bedding sites and what springs they used and didn't use, it for a long time was still a mystery as to how they could possibly survive. But slowly I began to see the patterns and the patterns kind of laid in, in, in campsites and glyph sites and stuff like that. And even stuff that was in the glyphs. While you can't read it like hieroglyphics, you can still tell a sheep or an atlatl and things like that. And you started to just, a picture began to emerge where these people really understood the sheep. I mean, they, you would find hunting blinds on a crucial place in a on a game trail. And once you understood the sheep and you understood that there was game trails going into the water and other ones, a propensity to use leaving the water and why, and all this other stuff, which had to do with their biomechanics, had to use uh, how much they use water and when. And then, of course, I started getting into the understanding of minerals, which was a huge boon of, of information that laid hidden for me really for decades. And it took a long time for me to realize just how intense the mineral situation was, not only for the sheep, but even the human beings. Paint us a picture about what what is a bighorn sheep, what the desert bighorn sheep are by way of where they live, uh, what they eat, how they live, how big are they, how small are they, Give us, you know, kind of paint us a picture about what we know about these animals. At one time, they were more numerous. Okay. But they're, they're not, they're only maybe like 3,000, 4,000 in California. Okay. But there's room for much more. They run about, a big ram runs about 200 pounds. And they are a lineage of animals that came from Eurasia. Okay. Maybe it's disputed 20, maybe 25,000 years ago. Okay. And of course, they were, for some Native Americans, they were a major resource, like the buffalo or the salmon for different cultures. The bighorn sheep was, was the, a major resource and, and cultural generator uh, for many Native American tribes and regions. So where do they live? What do they eat? How often do they have to water? They eat almost any plant, okay. uh, though there are plants that are poisonous and they, they seem to know and stay away from them. They'll eat barrel cactus when, when as a water source. Mm -hmm. uh, they can eat cat claw and somehow get those leaves off without ripping themselves to pieces. Uh, there are plants they don't eat choya. They they got a wide range. They can 
during the summer, in, in the hotter months, they'll often drink every day, but through the winter, they can go three, four months without drinking liquid water, getting all the water they need from the plants they eat. And so they, they're, they're a very, very desert adapted species. They're very desert adapted. They're probably on par with uh, the kit fox and the, and the jackrabbit as far as their adaptation to the desert. How big a group? They, they live in, in special groups or bands. And where do they move? And um, how can you find them? And, and how many, uh, what's, what's the reproduction rate? And how do they uh, sustain themselves? They um, typically, you won't see more than maybe 10 at a time. Okay. Although I've seen a group once that was as much as 80. And wow. here about, a, I don't know, six, eight months ago, I seen a group that was about 30, 35. Wow. Uh, but three and four is common. They, they, they'll tend to break up into groups like that. For most of the year, the males and females are separate. And then they come together for the rut. And it all depends on a lot of things as to where they are in their environment, the weather, the wind, past weather events, temperature, all manner of things. It, it gets to be a complex, more of an art than a science to know where they're at. Where do they bed down? Where do they sleep? They'll bed down and sleep almost anywhere, but there is certain places that they prefer. The typical bedding site is maybe just, 10 or 15 feet below a ridge mm -hmm. and which was called a, a bowl oftentimes mm -hmm. where, where maybe the head of a canyon, the headwaters of a canyon that has a certain topography. And then it depends from there, whether they're trying to get sun or whether they're trying to get out of the sun, whether they're trying to get into the wind or out of the wind. But a lot of times a person who understands sheep, can just look at a ridge line and say, well, they're not going to be anywhere there. And then turn right around and say, I'm going to look at these, these places, these bowls over here because of the temperature, the wind, the current greenery or, or the condition of the plants and topography and, and, and understand the rain like yesterday, a week ago, three weeks ago, and even sometimes two years ago, will influence where these sheep are at. It, it's just something, it, but again, it's an art. And after you spend some time, and of course the Native Americans weren't like me in the sense that they were learning it on their own. They had generational knowledge. So a grandfather would tell, you know, a grandson, I hunted this ridge like this under these conditions and this and that. And then his father would tell him, you know, this and this, and your uncle did said this. And so they would have a knowledge, and this knowledge allowed them to be in the right place at the right time. In many cases, there are places in the Newberries and the Cadies and places like that where there were campsites that you could tell once you understand the herd, even today, where it was like a conveyor belt with water feed, minerals, and you could camp there for maybe two, three months and expect every week or so a new group of sheep to come in wow. because they were coming for the different resources. And if you understood where and why and what and understood the sheep, you could pin it down to the what game trail they were going to come in on. But that's the kind of knowledge that they had, whereas modern people today use optics. They got you know, firearms with greater range. They got stuff like Jeeps and stuff like that. So if you don't see them in one area, you just get in the Jeep and go somewhere else. Whereas the ancient people didn't have a Jeep. They had to walk. And not only did they have to walk, but killing a sheep 10 miles away from your family really wasn't of any value. You, you had to do it in the right place at the right time. And the clock was always ticking. You always had hunger and starvation was 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 looking you in the face. So these guys had to get it right. And when you start looking at the glyphs and their placement and some of these 
hunting blinds that still exist. You realize these guys, they knew what they were doing. They, they had an intimate knowledge of the terrain and the psychology of, of the sheep. So what is the um, uh, predator-prey relationship? Which animals might go after a bighorn sheep, if there are any? Well, the, the mountain lion is, is the only one that's, that's relevant today. Bobcats okay. will take one once in a while, but, but I've, I've seen interactions of, of bobcats where the sheep either ignores them or runs them off. In the same way with coyotes, again, I've seen a fact that a coyote once, you know, it's a long story, but he was, he's a young coyote and he got messing with a group of sheep and they stomped him to death. Wow. And, and so they didn't take much to that. But in the past, you would have had wolves all through this country. This was wolf country. Okay. And so for both the people, because back then when the people didn't have firearms, the mountain lion itself knew that, that humans were on the menu and the wolves, certainly people were on the menu. And in that time, people shared that with the sheep, the sheep was on the menu. And even to this day, that's one of the things that we have changed dramatically. The sheep is the same. They walk the same game trails. They go to the same water sources. They eat the same minerals. And they're hunted 24-7 of their entire life. There's no vacation. There's no going to Vegas. There's no getting into some protected cage or nothing like that. They have to worry about predation their entire life. There's no ever, ever, not even a minute uh, of relaxing. If they relax, they're liable to be a dead sheep. Okay. We'll stop there and pick up the, the trail on the next segment. All right. Thank you, Carlos. See you on the flip-flop, gang. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Welcome back, gang. Uh, This is your rock art podcast. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, the host, and we have a blessing to have Carlos Gallinger back with us. And we're taking a very deep dive into the behavior patterns, the the habits and habitats of our bighorn sheep friends, but also we're going to talk about hunting and about rock art and about how they re- how the native people relate to uh, following the sheep. Well, let's pick it up. You were you were getting into some just very important elements. What is it about the landforms that have to be right to hunt a bighorn sheep? Well. There's different things, you know, again, it, it's complex deal, but there's certain things, for instance, the, the, what we call in the hunting world, escape terrain. So a sheep, a lot of times, if you're above it or on the same level, it will tend to be more fearful and, and panic and run further away. Whereas if it's on rough terrain, that's the right kind of rough, rough where it's it has the mechanical advantage, but no cliffs that box it in. You can get within 30 or 40 yards sometimes of an animal like that. If he's, you know, 50 or 100 feet above you, it'll have far less fear. But if it feels like it's boxed in or you're too close and it's smooth ground, then it's going to be a lot more fearful. And so there's actually a, like a psychology to the land. And then anytime you get near water, because predators, your mountain lions, your wolves, your bobcats, your coyotes, they're all water-driven. They cannot live 
without liquid water. And when I say water with sheep, you have to talk about plants like barrel cactuses and the temperature. Even shade is a form of water to a sheep. But shade doesn't really mean much to a bobcat or a mountain lion or a wolf. They still have to have liquid water all their life or they die. And bighorn sheep are well aware of this. So anytime they close into water, their fear level and awareness level goes way up. And oftentimes, if they even get a whiff of a predator, they'll go to a water source 10 miles away. They'll just abandon the whole idea of going into it. When you say a whiff, they have uh, almost uh, an extrasensory smell, the ability to smell their predators and other people. Tell us about that. They can smell you literally probably a mile away under the right conditions. And I say the right conditions. Oh, yeah. I've watched it because I've actually watched and played the game. We're like, okay, they don't know I'm here. And if they smell you and don't see you, that's almost certainly going to get a panic response. Almost certainly. You'll see sheep that, you know, they're not aware of you. And you start moving, let's say, from left to right. And you're dragging your scent trail. And you'll notice the whole herd will snap when they realize, wow. And they can tell. I don't know how they do it. But they can tell you're a predator. Because if a cow or a horse does the same thing, they won't, you won't even notice, a, they won't ripple even a slightest. They just, ah, some horse over there. You but, know, if they, it's a they, human, but if it's a human being, they know you're a predator. A, or a bobcat or a coyote yeah. or a wolf. Or they, a mountain lion. Mountain lion, they know what that smell is. They actually know. What they aren't, though, is, is they don't have a real good sense of uh, a sheep can run from that smell yeah. But it's on rails. It's like it just knows to get out of there. They they don't have, nor do coyotes or bobcats, mountain lions, and even the wolf doesn't really know, like, hey, there's a sheep. He doesn't know I'm there. So I'm going to sneak around off to the right and climb up on this hill and, and work the wind or something. Most predators, they just don't know that. Only humans have that understanding. So a lot of times, for instance, a sheep, you'll see a group of sheep run over a hill, not even run. If they're running, they're not going to stop. But yeah, they're unaware of you and they move over a hill. You wait a few minutes and pretty soon one of them sheep will come right back over and look back where they've come because they know that they've, let a, they've left a scent trail on the ground. Oh, wow. And a, and a predator moving you know, crossways of that scent trail will pick up on that. But again, he doesn't have the imagination to move over to the right and come around this gully. And that all he can do is follow that scent trail. That's all the imagination he has. But he can follow it completely invisible. He can follow it over lava rock. So, but that's that's critical to critical knowledge for a bighorn is that scent trail and trying to identify right. if, if, if a predator, if a predator is picking up on that, right? And the and the ancient hunters, the human hunters, understood these things. They they had this imaginative, multi dimensional idea of hunting that other animals didn't have. They would actually get like in like in a wolf skin to scare animals to another hunter, or they would don a sheep skin. Yeah. And bighorn sheepskin to move in. But they knew that if you're going to move in on a sheepskin, you'd better be, you know, where you're not, they're not downwind to you. Because if they're downwind to you, they're going to figure it out. You've wasted your time. But visually, you'll fool them. You can fool them visually. And, and, And you can even fool them. I've had more than one experience where I was just sitting and curled up in the ground in camo usually. And they would see me, and usually they could see, like, the, the glistening of your eyes, and they could tell it was some sort of a face or something. Yeah. But you were too far away for them to really identify you, and their their need and desire to herd up would override their fear, and they would come right into me. I have a video where one got within maybe 10 or 15 feet of me. I've had it done with antelope, where they I had one time I was hunting antelope, and 
this this antelope came right up and sniffed me. And the minute it sniffed me, it knew it had a problem. But it walked right up to me. I was laying on the ground and it couldn't figure out what I was. And as long as it couldn't figure out, it's curiosity overrode fear. So they have this different view. And the ancient hunters understood the psychology. They could become the sheep. And that's how, and it, it gets, you know, you can get into all this kind of religious area because you had to become the victim to become the predator. And this psychological and and quasi-religious and, and philosophical stuff was going on in the ancient hunters' minds. The shamanism based on this stuff. They talk about, first of all, donning the bighorn sheep horns. They talk about also plucking a bow or producing some sort of curiosity or banging, you know, two rocks together or something to, to like mimic the head buzz, you know, budding mm -hmm. behavior. They also they also produce these um, dummy hunters, dummy hunters. But you had all you know. It went even like for instance, the Native Americans had a, a fantastic. They could make bow and arrows, laminated bows out of yes. bighorn yes. uh, horns, yep. and they of course use the bowstring was a tendon. So here you're you've got this device literally made out of a sheep that you're trying to kill another sheep with, but you're exactly. trying to kill it to produce life in you and your children and your family. So there's Absolutely. all these kind of things. And this stuff is in the glyphs. There's stuff in the glyphs that you start looking at and you begin to just wonder, you know, the kind of depth and stuff. And of course it's all symbolic and it's symbolic to these ancient people, not to us. So it leaves mystery. Tell us something about, the glyphs and the symbolism and, and maybe some of the things you've seen that you believe are associated with hunting or the behavior, the habits and habitats of bighorn sheep, something that stands out in your mind. Well, one of the ones, and again, it's, it's speculative and you got to accept it as a speculation because we don't have firm knowledge. It, through modern photography, digital photography, you can take just thousands of pictures, you know, whereas back when it was film, you just couldn't, and you had to develop them and had negatives. And it, it, you just, it just didn't leave you to do. But once I got into digital photography, all kinds of stuff, all kinds of repeating glyphs. And there's one that is, if you ever seen one, you would just swear it's just if somebody was hallucinating on peyote or something. It's like, and that it's a one-off glyph and you'd never really think of anything. You'd never be in your mind. You, you would just go and say, oh, look at this sheep glyph and not this glyph. You would never think of it as anything. But once you see how specific this particular glyph repeats and repeats and repeats throughout the Great Basin anyway, you realize that that it's a repeating glyph. So it must have had a, a more standardized meaning. And and what does that again, glyph it, look what does that glyph look like? Well, what, what I speculate, and again it's speculation. Sure. It, it I think is a gut pile. Okay. And a gut pile, a lot of uh, primitive people throughout the world, and even really up into up into historic times, people in Europe would use a gut pile as kind of a crystal ball. A, a shaman or, or something mm. would look through this and, and, and see the future or try to make rain or whatever. But it was a mystical thing. And of course, guts are a, myst a, a gut pile. Why is it there? Does it have a function? You know, and, and what is a gut pile, Carlos? Well, after you've killed an animal, typically when you butcher it, you whether it's a domestic hog or a cow, you open up the body cavity and you bring out the, the internals. And for most primitive people and even early agriculture, you ate all that stuff. Not We just mostly eat the muscle today, but that wasn't the norm. So there's another glyph that happens over and over again. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that, but it happens over. I've seen it in the Great Basin style, and there's a really good one in a place called Newspaper Rock, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. the hunter, it's a hunting scene, which is not a very common thing where it's a whole scene. And the hunter with a bow and arrow is shooting, uh, in one case, a deer, in another case, I, I got a number of cases of this, mm -hmm. 
shooting a, a sheep, a big ram. And the one, the ram is actually looking around and saying, man, did you really just shoot that arrow up my butt? <laughs> because that's what it's happening. And it's like, uh-huh. and, uh-huh. and the one, the, like I say, the sheep is actually looking around with, it's actually, you could tell the head is turned, but uh-huh. the sheep is in profile. And uh-huh. the, the arrow, the guy's got a bow and it drives a line right into the anus of the sheep. Yeah. And this shot exact lasted all the way into historic times. Sure. The one on newspaper rock, the guy's on a horse, and there's this gigantic deer, and he's got a bow, and it's and it, and it actually it's got the arrow stuck in the sheep, or the deer, excuse me, yeah. with like blood coming out. I mean, it's like and it's right at the rear end, and I believe that it's a poison arrow, that it's an enema, okay. if you will. Uh, uh-huh. We don't know that. To see this shot replicated, and when hunting scenes are so rare, and it's yeah. this particular shot, uh-huh. it has to carry your imagination somewhere. Sure. You know, and then another one that I think is uh, has some, is the Adelaide. Yeah. The Adelaide, there are glyphs that, almost photographically reproduce the Adelaide. And, and there's one actually uh, in, in the uh, Little Lake area uh-huh. that actually showed two different designs. It's mm-hmm. like the Ford and the Chevy of, of, of Adelaide's. Okay. But most of the Adelaide's are reduced to a circle with a line. Mm-hmm. And I believe that is showing that the real center of gravity of their iconography, their symbolism, was basically something drawn in the dirt with a stick or your hand. The symbol with the atlatl, if you were to draw one in the sand, it would be a circle with a line through it. You wouldn't start with the circle and then the line only to the circle stop, then start the line at the other end of the circle. You would do a circle, scratch right through it with a line. And it kind of, and that symbol, I think, is gravitated toward being drawn in the sand. And I think a lot of glyphs have that that center of gravity of their of their their artists. Just like if you had, if if you see a an ancient Roman statue in an ancient Roman painting, mm-hmm. you could say, you know, those are from the same era and the same culture made those, right. even though they're two different mediums. Sure. And I think the major medium of the glyphs were being drawn in sand. Makes sense. That, yeah. You know, and it um, sounds like that, that would be a preliminary picture of what they're going to produce in the uh, on the rocks. Right. So once you produce enough, you know, and maybe this atlatl was a prayer, maybe it was a cult symbol, maybe it was a clan symbol. We don't know. But it was a symbol that meant a lot to them. We know that. We can say that. And we know that it, it, it's, it has a propensity to be at hunting sites. And, Absolutely. And, you know, and these hunting sites, you know, there's water, often water, often water with minerals. Some springs and some water has minerals, some don't. But almost all have some sort of mineral component to them. It's a huge, huge part of the uh, understanding of bighorn sheep is understanding the minerals. The minerals let's, are Let's crucial. stop there and uh, we'll pick it up and focus on finishing it up on the third segment. All right. Hope you, got, hope you guys are having a good time out there in Rock Art Podcast land. See you in the flip-flop. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey out there in rock art podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel with our guest scholar, Carlos Gallinger, who's a freelance wildlife biologist, expert in all things desert bighorn. And he's talking to us today about some of the things he's learned about uh, hunting the bighorn sheep, their behavior, their habits and habitats, and how that relates to the landscape, the landforms, and the psychology of prehistoric hunters. Carlos, you were telling us a bit about certain elements that the bighorn sheep needs. What would you call that? That's a discovery that you've made, isn't it? There's a lot of, in our society, you might see a lot of lost information. For instance, a lot of the stuff I've been now learning is right off the internet. We have veterinarian technology that's available and you can go and we know what sheep need, but we've lost it in the in the natural world. In, in the East Coast of America, a lot of people, because the land is private, they make mineral licks for their deer that they hunt. We don't do that on the West Coast, and we really don't do that for sheep. But I suspect that sometime in the future, this information is going to permeate into the wild sheep you know, conservation groups, and we will really utilize it. What is the mineral licks or the minerals that bighorn sheep need so, so critically that you believe are of great, great importance? Well, some of them are direct earth. They eat the dirt. Okay. Some of them, they rip the root out and, and they eat the minerals, the root, which often has more water and the mm-hmm. fungus on the root. Okay. And then there's a real connection with birds. 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 The, the wind and, and the mountains can, can concentrate the, Efforts in birds and they get bird droppings and you can get all kinds of stuff like phosphorus and selenium and all these other elements. And oftentimes these places are significant to understanding the sheep for miles around. You know, again, the, the internet is a wonderful tool. This video where they were showing these people, they, they had reindeer. And they lived in a teepee. And the way they would urinate is they would leave the teepee and they would run for this stick out in the middle of the the snow, sticking up in the stick. And as soon as the the reindeer seen them do that, they would stampede and to the point where it's kind of dangerous. But once you got to the stick, you started beating the reindeer in the head till they backed off. And then once they backed off, you'd urinate. And then it was okay to leap as the the reindeer were going to go for that urine. And these reindeer, they had put up with being slaughtered and used as beast of burden, all because they needed minerals. And I suspect somewhere in the deep past, that's how in this manner of some sort, we domesticated sheep and goats. And that the ancient Americans were probably on the same trajectory, just a few generations behind that they understood the minerals, they understood the water, they understood the sheep, they knew, you know, there's five sheep there, but let's not get those ewes. Let's get that old ram. Let's get that old ewe, and we'll harvest them. And then more sheep will come here next week because they're get, we know we're at the place where the minerals, the feed, the water, the wind, the terrain is all right. And so like the Newberry Caves, sheep come from 30, 40 miles away through a range of mountains to get to that particular place. Why is that? Well, because you had the minerals, you had water, and you had a place where you could camp your family and have firewood. What minerals are there? Well, there's different ones. We know that selenium is like one of the critical ones. It has a lot to do with immunity and Mm -hmm. reproduction. Okay. Phosphorus is another very important one that has a lot of outcome on, on, on animals. And there's a whole range. And, and, and some of them, the, the, again, the biology is already done. Then I think if you get enough selenium, then copper, 
There's a range which it's necessary. Higher than that, it is poisonous or detrimental. And below that, you, you have a detriment. But the more yeah. selenium you get, the wider that range is. So it's, it's, so selenium really helps process, I think it's selenium, copper. You know what's interesting, Carlos? You're talking about Newberry Cave, right? Yes. And you're saying how the minerals are there. And I think you alluded to perhaps that uh, selenium or, or some sort of copper-based mineral might have been there. What's the more unusual thing about that cave is certainly it's a middle archaic from about 2000 BC to about 1000 BC is when it was being occupied. And there is about a thousand effigies that were done, what they call them split twig figurines mm-hmm. were fashioned there. And we believe that that was a, a base for a, a hunting cult, also a um, totemic you know, group that, that worshiped the sheep and did ceremonies. But importantly, on, on top of all that, the principal rock art there is not petroglyphs, but pictographs. There's paintings. And the principal color used to paint those pictures is green. And the green is both painted on yeah. darts and on ceremonial objects, including quartz crystals, and also the green is used for the painting of the pictures of bighorn sheep and other abstract figures. Well, that green, it's a volcanic element. And I believe it is found in the vicinity of the cave because there was so much of it. They even used it on the pallets themselves to grind and make the pigment. And there, there might be some relationship between that green pigment and those minerals you're talking about. Right. The Newberry Cave site is is basically men went into the cave and no doubt had religious things going on while they were waiting for sheep. At the bottom of the waterfall, that was a Tanaha water source. If you look at Tanahas out in the desert, you'll see they their, their ability to hold water waxes and wanes. And the way you can tell that is if it's still holding water or held water in the last few centuries, there will be a scum line. And depending on how fast the debris, and in the case of the Newberry Caves, it's relatively fast, will grind out that that scum line. And depending on the rocks and the cracks and how much fine particles get packed into the cracks, after a while you can see this. But at one time, that and right now the Newberry Tanaha at the at the cave site doesn't hold water, but in the past it almost certainly did, and I would even go so far as to say that if you had the ability to, if if radiocarbon dating say was accurate enough, you'd find mm-hmm. that it was only used in the summer, and any time you could pick a year that they were hunting. And it was abandoned. That's why there's no archaeological stuff from from the archery age or the pottery yeah. age, because that Tanaha didn't hold water at that time. And if you look at some of the ash deposits in that area, right around the, the you can actually see where the sheep have reshaped the angle of the mountain to a concave where they've been eating it for so long, but they can only really eat it. I mean, they can eat it without liquid water. But if they have liquid water, then that minerals becomes far more useful. So and the what minerals, you have, are the minerals around the Tanaha itself? They're just above. If you're uh-huh. facing the cave, the main source uh-huh. is yeah. to your left and just above it. But there's others right in that area within 50 or 100 yards where this outcropping of a ash comes out. And to this day, there is some sort of a water source there now? No, it doesn't. It doesn't hold water. The, the Tanaha, again, the, the after a while you've watched these desert Tanahas, you'll learn yeah, yeah. that their ability to hold water waxes and wanes over right. centuries or eons. And at one time, at the time that that was used, that Tanaha was no doubt held water, and then that water made those vent minerals way like like 
the sum of the parts kind of thing. Yeah. Way more valuable. That site became way more valuable. And then you had a cave, which meant you could be there in, in this roaring heat because it was almost certainly only during the summer that because that's the only time you could really effectively hunt the sheep in the summer because they had to come to liquid water. Mm-hmm. If you had an atlatl and you had to hunt the sheep across that face of that mountain, it, you're not going to be very effective. But if you know they're coming for that liquid water and they got minerals there too, you're going to attract a conveyor belt of sheep. Sheep are going to come there from 30, 40 miles away, wow. all the way from Ord Mountain. So these people, and then you had the perfect little campsite down in the in the valley yeah. that would have had mesquite and it had, it had grapevines and all this firewood. So you had a place that had everything together. The men could leave the, the women. There was a spring right down there in the playa. So the mm-hmm. women would have water. You walked just up the little ways up into this canyon. You knew the sheep were going to come in. If you killed three or four sheep, great. You dragged them home. And those guys, the next three or four guys were going to wait up there until three or four more sheep came in. And that was going to happen almost like a grocery store. Yeah. Because they needed the minerals. They needed the water. But once the winter hit, those sheep aren't going to be there. They're not going to go to dangerous. And you would have also found wolves and mountain lions, bobcats and coyotes also going to that water source. They would have been well aware. Wow. Any mountain lion down in the valley that was in the Mojave River would have been well aware of that water source up there in the Newberry Cave. And so they, they, they liked it for the water source. They liked it for the cave. They liked it for the minerals. And I guess it also had escape terrain, right? Escape terrain and a and a... And essentially, a cool place. If you had to wait, you got to remember these people didn't have, you know, the, they they had kind of canteens. They could weave a basket to hold some water. So being cool, being in the cool of the cave and waiting for a day or two, or getting up there in the morning and waiting until evening or something when the sheep came in, was much more doable in that cave. Just way more doable than than out in the hot sun you know, it's some other water source that didn't have a shelter. And in that cave, you could have four or five guys, you know, and a place to walk around and eat some snack food and just wait. And one guy's sitting there waiting for the sheep to come in. When they come in, they make a plan. Who's going to throw their addle Who's not? What sheep they're going to select and why? And make the kill drag it on home if everybody's going to go or some people are going to stay because if you made a kill, you might've killed like out of maybe 10 sheep, you got two or three, maybe those sheep scattered and they're not coming back, but there's another two or three groups that haven't got the message. They're going to be an hour away. Oh, wow. So, so it's multiple herds will come and follow. And so they get multiple water. And minerals and escape yeah. terrain. Yeah. And once the, the Indians figured this out, again, it was just, and of course you can imagine, you know, we still, some people still pray at a meal, how bountiful they might have felt about this. The great spirit, sure. the great sure. ram, the spirit of the mountain, the spirit of the cave, whatever their religious ideologies were would have been piqued by just the experience, you know, how many young men, you know, finally left the village, you know, left mommy and went with the men and killed their first big game in yeah. that cave. And that would have been a memory for a lifetime. Right. A memory they'd have told their grandchildren. Right. You know, I was here and this is what I did, son, and you got to do this and this is what's going to happen. And, and some young, you know, we're talking probably a kid, 1415 dragging home with the men a ram or, or you a sheep entering the village this this victorious like hey he's a man now you know Carlos we only have about a minute left in the very last segment here okay for your for your sign off is there a, a message you'd like to share to our listenership uh, about your lifetime of studying the sheep? Well, I'll put my plug, my my uh, website, 
thewayofthings.org if you're interested in this kind of information. And that's pretty much, I guess I'll leave it to you. (laughs) Carlos, it's a joy. You're a treasure. There's no one like you on the planet that knows more about the habits and habitats and the hunting techniques and how to go about knowing something about the bighorn. And it's been a blessing and an honor to associate with you over the years. God bless you all in uh, archaeology podcast land. See you on the flip-flop. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Come.